We certainly are blessed to be able to gather again this afternoon. Thankful are we that God has sufficiently looked upon us and allowed us the privilege of assembling in His name, and in so doing to offer to Him a worship that we trust will be pleasing and acceptable in His amazing sight. As always, in the midst of those thankfulnesses and the singing and the other aspects of our worship, we come to a time of reflecting on at least a portion of the Word of God. And as you may have noted in the bulletin, we have come to the fourth Sunday in the month of January, and we're again going to use a question and answer format for one of the Sunday nights each uh, during each one of the months this year, and that's tonight. So the first one for the year 2023 will be our question and answer session. And what that means is, as always, in essence, the congregation selects the topics. There's a little box out there in the foyer, and you write questions and certainly leave them anonymous. I don't know who wrote any of these questions tonight, but we'll then devote one of those lessons, and that's tonight, to give some reflection to questions that might well be upon your mind. This opening slide is just an introductory one that reminds us about the character of questions and answers. Surely I think that we're all mindful of how interesting sometimes questions can often be and sometimes matters that might be posed in a way that we didn't initially think of. Question number one. In Genesis 1 verse 27, the Bible states God created man in his own image. Later in the, in the, in the verse, the Bible says he created male and female. In verse 28, it goes on to tell them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Eve was not created until chapter 2, verses 21, 22, and 23. Was Eve created after the six days of creation? Or was she referred to as the female in verse 27 of chapter 1? If I may paraphrase at least a portion of the question, it's again an exceedingly good one. The idea is this, as you and I read through Genesis chapter 1, we notice the creation record for man is highlighted beginning in verse 24. That is, on the sixth day, God fashioned the land animals earlier that day, but then, in verse 26, the spotlight is particularly turned to the creation of mankind. And in particular, the creation of one in which it says, let us make man in our image. And so suddenly we find the creation of man, but then nothing is said in that verse directly about Eve. Suddenly we find in verse 28 it says, Be fruitful and multiply. Indicative of the fact there must have been male and female, and yet she was not specifically named then. In fact, her creation doesn't come until the end of chapter 2. And so, an excellent question. Let's give some in in indication, and you'll notice on that slide the way in which I would encourage us to develop some of the thoughts about that particular question and the passages to which it refers. As you notice near the top of that slide, we have a very much an appreciation in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis. In this opening chapter of the wonderful book of God, we find that the creation of Adam... The appreciation that he was made first. Later on in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, that is expressly said, Adam was made first, and later, then, if you please, Eve was fashioned or created. But isn't it interesting that her creation is not mentioned in detail until chapter 2? Is her contradiction? In fact, was she created after the six days? That is such a sufficient question, and one so mighty and powerful, I would think we might well want to reflect rather intriguingly upon it. 
was Eve created after the six days of God's creative activity. By the way, we know God rested the seventh day based on Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. And so if Eve wasn't created in the first six days, it would not have been till day eight at the earliest. Is that biblically accurate? Is it consistent with the Word of God? As you step through that slide with me, could I remind us, and as we read back to the verses that's now before us, verse 26 of chapter 1, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now let's pause right there. We immediately notice there's a reference to the character of the creation of one, unlike the animals that had been referenced earlier. Let us make man in our image, but then something intriguing develops. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And then the verse goes on. Did you notice the plural pronoun? God made reference on this occasion to the fashioning of one that was not an animal, the fashioning of one, but you'll notice a plural was appreciated. And so, under the banner or appreciation of what was there was the inclusion of that which would involve a plurality, both the man and the woman, if you will. But you'll notice that the next verse goes on to say this. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He him, Male and female created he them. Now there we have perhaps our first clear exposition highlighting before us the fact that in the view of God's appreciation here was the understanding that there was to be a plurality, male and female, not two men, not two women, but male and female, and they were to have dominion over the animals that had been fashioned, over the other aspects of God's creation. As you look at that slide with me, could we not note now verse 31? It says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so at that point, everything under prescription and everything that had been highlighted was said to have been very good. That's noteworthy, isn't it? At this point, I've invited you to consider the following. Eve was a part of the six days of God's creative activity. In Exodus chapter 20, verse number 11, we find there that the following statement is made, that the God of heaven fashioned the earth, the heavens, the sea, and all that in them is in six days. In other words, we aren't left any possibility of extending the fashioning or creating of Eve beyond the six days for everything, including her, must have been made during that six-day period. That isn't the only place that that is in fact stated. In Exodus, also to be noted, chapter 31, verse 17, something very similar is again worded. So first, Eve was created during the six days of God's create, creative activity and thus would have been on day number six because she had to be after the man. And the man wasn't fashioned until day six. So she must have been fashioned later on day six. Now, verse number, or rather chapter number two, what then must we make of it? Would it not be fair to see it in this fashion? It is an elaborate set of details that share with us the particular features about what was taking place and what had taken place earlier. So the man was created, but he was alone, Genesis 2.18. And God immediately set about to remedy that shortcoming. He brought a deep sleep upon Adam. 
In that surgical procedure, he moved a rib from his side, fashioned from that rib a woman, and he brought her to the man, and then he married them. And so as you and I understand, again, chapter 2 is a presentation of some details, an elaboration in which we understand more clearly the development as they had it very broadly been mentioned back in chapter 1. And that's the very way that we close that particular slide. I would pause at this point and say this. There is something very special about the way in which Eve came to be. Did you notice, for instance, on day 5, God fashioned both birds and whales, but male and female, and both of them were fashioned that day. The females didn't come a day later. They didn't come any time later. Earlier on day six, when God fashioned the land-dwelling creatures, like, again, cattle, males and females were created at the same time. The female didn't wait until later. But something special about the creation of man. Adam came first, and there was some period of time he was alone. That forevermore challenges us to appreciate that the fashioning of the woman the coming about of Eve was of such great theological appreciation that later Paul would develop an entire consideration about it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. At this point, may we say, I think we've at least addressed the opening question. How about question number two? This next question is again one that is very intriguing. It's very short. Do dogs go to heaven? Do dogs go to heaven? Maybe you and I have thought about that. Maybe we've pondered, wondered about this. I might even take the opportunity to perhaps broaden that question. What about animals in general? Cats? Horses? Perhaps other favorite animals? You and I may have many particular favorites. Do they go to heaven? Some of the first questions, then it surely must cross our mind, is this. So in regard to anything, what is it that goes to heaven? Does the Word of God share that information with us? Does it present that detail to us? The first thing we'd have to understand is that whatever consists of flesh and blood only will not go to heaven. Didn't Paul remind us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 51, Flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. It's an impossibility. That realm is not for flesh and blood. That realm is for incorruption. That realm is not, you see, for what you and I would appreciate to be flesh and blood. Thus, we need to ask that very question about a dog or a cat or perhaps some other animal. What is it that goes to heaven? And does that dog possess whatever that is? You'll notice on that slide I've asked us to at least ponder very powerfully the Bible's description of things like soul and things like spirit. We know from the Bible's teaching that there are things that are not flesh and blood. These lasting matters that are quite frankly in some ways very much like God Himself. But first we need to cross that bridge of what is meant by the word soul. I realize that there are times you and I rather appropriately speak about having this soul, that which is not flesh and blood, that which again is far more lasting. When you think about the word soul, may I point out, however, that at its most basic level, the word soul connects to breathing. 
And that turns out to be very significant. The word soul connects to the idea and to the reality of respiration. You and I know that you and I breathe, but animals do too. Animals breathe. Therefore, we have to be mindful that as we read verses like Genesis chapter 1, notice what is said. May I point you to verse number 24? And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. Living creature. So this is going to refer to cattle and dogs and other land-dwelling creatures. They're recognized as living creatures. That's the phrase by which they're called. You may notice, however, when you come to verse number 26, in regard to the creation of man, that phrase is not used. You and I are somewhat different than that. We are alive to be sure. But as that slide will easily point out to us, we now have to understand this. God's a spirit, for example. John 4, verse 24. And therefore we worship Him in spirit and in truth. But you'll notice, though you and I breathe, there is something distinct about that which constitutes you and me as it's distinguished from, say, a cat or a dog or, an, or perhaps an animal such as that. As animals were fashioned as living creatures, it's a bit interesting to observe. It is not said that they were fashioned in the image of God. It is nowhere said that they are fashioned in the likeness of God. It is nowhere said that they have this essence that would in fact be an incorruptible matter that would allow them entrance into heaven. I say that for this reason. Look at some of the ways in which you and I read about ourselves. In Zechariah 12, verse 1, for example, The Lord God formed man, speaking, of course, of human beings, and the God of heaven formeth the spirit of man which is in him. That's interesting. You and I are immortal spirits. We do more than breathe. We breathe, but animals do too. But we are immortal spirits. God possesses in the sense of spirit, and He gives that to us. That Zechariah 12 passage isn't the only place that's found. In Hebrews 12, verse number 9, aren't we reminded, even the New Testament, that it's the God of heaven who's the Father of our spirits. Every one of us are immortal spirits. We will never cease to be. But you'll notice that distinguishes us mightily from an animal. There's no indication in the Word of God that animals possess this that you and I would call spirit. There's no indication anywhere. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, I would at least remind us of some additional passages. I invited you to notice Zechariah 12, but in Job 32, Elihu made a rather amazing statement, directly asserting that you and I are spirit. And as such, God provides that to us. Later on, you may notice, one last statement would be this one. The writer of Ecclesiastes made this statement. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and then we're going to look also at chapter number 12. But in the midst of those, may I invite you to consider the following. And remember, we're just asking the question, do animals possess that? which would, in fact, be fair to say would enter heaven. That's the only question we're asking. If the Bible gives us no indication of it, then we would not be wise to hold out hope indeed for, for that very idea. Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, verse 21. 
Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward? And then, to make sure we understand this, he's asking this rhetorically. Man's spirit goes upward. But then he says, what about that of a beast that goes downward? The writer seems to make it rather clear that as the concept is at least under discussion, there's the understanding by that inspired penman about that of a man that proceeds upward, but it isn't that way for the animal. Turn over to chapter 12 and look at the way it's presented there. In the closing chapter, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. We noticed earlier that God is the one who gives the Spirit to human beings, and several passages have taught us that. But there, under that appreciation, notice again the Spirit does return to the reality of that realm beyond this one, existence beyond what we would recognize as the grave. But that isn't said in that way in regard to an animal anywhere. As we've tried to address that question, we've tried to do so with fairness and just ask, do the animals possess that which is described to be that that would enter heaven? What about question three? This one kind of connects to that question. What will we do in heaven? I know that we will worship God and sing, but does the Bible speak of any further details? Any other activities, if you please? This is a challenging question, and it's one that certainly affords an opportunity for some degree of reflection, which I hope that that slide will put before us. What will we do in heaven? Isn't it true that sometimes as we ponder our life here in the flesh, we realize that there's a day of activity or a week of activity or sometimes even far more than that? But may I point out that that very concept is the one that challenges us so mightily in relation to eternity. We are so accustomed to pondering time and its existence and our limitation with respect to it, but we must remember that in that realm beyond this one, there is no time. Time will be no more. There are no stopwatches, clocks, calendars, sundials, or anything of the like. In fact, in the Bible's description of Revelation 21, we are there reminded about the ongoing perpetual nature of that existence. And that's a challenge for us to fully conceptualize here. In fact, that's the reason I put the opening statement on that. When you and I try to ponder again, what am I going to do for the ceaseless ages of eternity? So difficult to fathom. You and I have a 24-hour period and it is so compartmentalized. I've got this to do, and that to do, and then something else. And before you know it, the whole day is consumed. But you see there, there will be nothing of the like. Absolutely nothing of the like. There are some verses I do think that could be helpful. Let me share some of them with you. In this realm, we understand there's time. Ecclesiastes 3 has much to say about that. And even Jesus highlighted it. But beyond that statement, could we now not note this? During the time we're in this flesh, there is work. There are chores. And there are tasks. And as you and I know, there's a lot of them typically. Didn't Jesus say in John 9 verse, four, verse number 4 about the ongoing character of work? May I point out that there's one thing about that that should greatly heighten our understanding of Revelation 14, 13. 
once we lay the mantle of this old life down, blessed are the dead that, lie, that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. There's coming a wonderful time of rest for those that have died in the Lord. For those that have died ready to go, there's rest. I hope that excites all of us. As you look beyond that on the slide, though, could I say this? We are accustomed, you see, in this life to things that decay. That's partly what time does to things. The various forces at work in light of the passage of time bring about deterioration and decay and quite often what the Bible would call corruption. In fact, didn't Paul speak of it that very way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17? In this body, we are decaying. But he looked forward to a place and a time when there would be none of that. That alone is so different than anything you and I have ever experienced here. It is for that reason I make that next statement on that slide. There's coming a moment when the spirit that you and I discussed earlier that really is you and me will be released from the confines of this flesh. And when that happens, we're going to then be in an existence that's beyond anything we've ever known here. There will be nothing like this. There will be nothing along the lines of what we've only experienced up until now. That place, that time, that appreciation, if you will, will be one that will only usher in this place we call heaven. What will we do? The word do indicates that there will be activities. And Revelation at least does highlight that there will be activities. But we aren't told a lot more than what I have on that slide. We do know this. In Revelation 22, 3, we will serve God. What will that service involve? The person who wrote the question noted, what about singing? We are taught in Revelation 15 that we will be singing. We are taught also that we will be worshiping. Revelation 21, in fact, highlights that in some detail. Beyond that, does it say anything else? I had a hard time finding much else besides Revelation 7, verse 15. If you look at that passage, we do at least read this. Therefore are they before the throne of God, so we are somewhere before the wonderful place of God's powerful throne, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And Revelation 21.4 somewhat expounds upon that even more thoroughly. But notice, so we'll serve the God of heaven. We shall be there with the Lamb. Will God provide us with particular commandments relative to things that will need to be accomplished? Perhaps. Is it true that He will provide us then with what will completely satisfy us in every way in our existence? Yes. As far as I know, the Bible gives us no more extensive details on the answer to that question. What it does offer us is this. 
whatever shall be the nature of that existence, and we know it'll be incorruptible, and we know it'll be fulfilling, and we know it'll be with all three members of the Godhead. May I say that'll be enough. May I say whatever's involved in it, it shall be enough. What about question four tonight? This one is another very good question. All of them have been. The Lord's Supper, does this mean it should be observed in the evening only? When you and I think about the Lord's Supper, that we with such excitement partake of each Lord's Day, should we really be only partaking of that at night since it's called a supper? What do you think? Good question, isn't it? Now, in order to make sure that we appreciate at least the nature of the question, I took a couple of lines to just highlight, I think, what the person had in mind. I don't know again who wrote it, but it appeared that the way it was written, it suggested this to me. You and I are accustomed to calling the evening meal of the day supper. If it's called the Lord's Supper, should we then, by virtue of the teaching of the Bible, only be partaking of this at night? Is it wrong to take of it in the morning like we did earlier today? It's a very good question. So good, in fact, that I thought we would take a little time and develop some appreciation about it. You'll notice again on that slide, you and I typically call the early meal of the day breakfast. Then the middle meal of the day, some call it lunch, and then the evening meal is called dinner. Other people, perhaps you and I would fall in that category, call the early meal breakfast, the middle meal of the day, dinner, and the evening meal supper. If the Word of God intended that that be a supper, and the Word's used exactly that way only, then is it wrong to take of it in the middle of the day or early in the day? Should we be only taking it at night? Intriguing question, isn't it? Let's look at the Word of God and see what might be said about it. First, note the character of the words used. That word supper comes from the verb sup, S-U-P. The word dinner, if one has an interest in giving thought to it, of course comes from the, the basic verb to dine. But our interest of, is, of course, supper, the Lord's Supper. Is it called that in Scripture? And was it the intent of the God of heaven that it only be taken at night. You can already see on the slide that there are a few verses I would ask you to consider with me first. What time of day did the Lord establish it? You and I know quite well that as Jesus was celebrating that Passover celebration, it's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We do know that He partook of that in the evening. The Hebrews, you see, began their day at sunset. That is to say, a particular day ended with the sun setting and the next day began. So that's quite different than you and me. We start our day at midnight. They started theirs at sundown. Isn't that why you and I read in various verses in the book of Genesis, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Evening preceded morning. Not only in those verses of Genesis chapter 1, but a number of other places, we're clearly taught that, again, the evening is what for them started their day. Thus, when God gave commandment to the Hebrews to celebrate the Passover, you may recall He specifically said at even, 
when you take that lamb and slay it. It was an evening. And so when Jesus partook of it and celebrated that with his apostles, you may recall in Mark chapter 14, it was in the evening. So you and I now know it was at that same celebration when the Lord, after supper, so it would still have been in the evening, he in fact established the Lord's Supper. What time of day would that have been? It may well have been closer to 9 p.m. from what you and I would call it. So the Lord established what we would call the Lord's Supper, sure enough, in the evening hours. Was it expected, though, by Him that all who would ever more take of it would take of it at that same time of day that He established it? Was that His intent? Could I pause and at least make mention of this? Isn't it true there were some incidental matters connected to the observance of that initial establishment of the Lord's Supper? May I mention a few? There are some things you and I could quickly mention. For example, they took it in an upper room. Was it the intent of God that it only be observed in an upper room? If so, we've clearly erred. We're not in an upper room. We need another store. We need another floor to this building, apparently, if that's true. Is it okay to not take it in an upper room, though that's where the Lord was when He established it? What about this one? You and I know from various verses in the book of John that they were reclining. That is to say, they were at least sitting. And the text of John 19 seems to indicate that at least two of them were, in fact, much more reclining, as you and I would say it. Should you and I be taking it, reclining on a cot? Should we be lying in our pew and take of it? I don't think any of us would go that far. Those were issues connected to what was taking place at the observance. Did the Lord intend that it be always partaken of by everybody that exact same way? There's no indication the Corinthians took of it that way. There's no indication that the other congregations mentioned in the New Testament took of it that way. What we do seemingly find is this. There appear to have been certain elements connected to the surroundings and environment that were merely incidental, like, again, the upper room, and the custom that was theirs of reclining, at least some of them. You and I know, though, that later in the New Testament, when the Lord's Supper was under discussion, none of those things were mentioned, none of them. Paul did not at all tell the Corinthians, you have to do it in an upper room. In fact, you and I know that many of the early churches were in people's houses, like the one mentioned in Philemon verse 2, and the one mentioned in Romans 16, most of those houses weren't two-story arrangements. The point is, it seems as if that is not at all what the Lord intended to be bound. It's not the character of the upper room, and it's not the particular posture, but there are elements in it that appear to have been identically bound. Unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. That was mentioned 30 years later to the Corinthians, those same elements were highlighted. It's as if there was no possibility of allowing anything different than them. As you revisit that slide with me, may I ask you to notice the bottom of it as it segues into the last slide, which is now this one. Let us look at a few of the passages that do speak about the Lord's Supper and ask, do they seemingly indicate that it must only be taken at night? In Acts 20, verse number 7, here was Paul traveling, of course, attempting to make it to Jerusalem by the time of the Pentecost. He came to the city of Troas. 
and he was certainly excited to meet with the brethren. You'll notice they waited until Sunday to meet. That alone tells us something about the character of the day on which they met. Couldn't meet on Friday. Couldn't meet on Thursday. He had to wait. Though he was in a hurry to make it to Jerusalem by the Pentecost, the brethren weren't going to meet until Sunday. And that's when Paul met with them. And in verse 7 of that chapter, we read, when the disciples came together to break bread. So they came together to break bread. What time was that? The text doesn't say. Later in the chapter, we notice Paul preached to midnight. And sometimes we do Paul a bit of a disservice there. He preached well after midnight when you actually read it. He preached practically to the morning light. But when did they partake of the Lord's Supper? It may have been well before sundown. The text doesn't say. What we do know is that there was an emphasis upon their observance of that Lord's Supper. And the sweetness and the power of it was such a moving moment. Look at another of the passages I ask you to consider. In Mark 14, 25, when Jesus Himself was speaking about it. Isn't it interesting the wording He used? He challenged them to partake of it appropriately. And then He said, I will not take of it until I take it new with you on that day in my Father's kingdom. So the Lord made mention of the word day. And you'll notice when you and I joyously celebrate the Lord's Supper, we appreciate the nature of the fact that the Lord is a part of this ceremony. Not that He's physically here, obviously, but it is a memorial of His blood and His body. And in so doing, it follows the instruction and the commandment that He gave us. But again, Jesus didn't seem to say anything about night. Look at the next one in Revelation 19.9. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, that's the same word in Greek as the one that we're looking at. It's the word supper in Greek. Did you notice in Revelation 19, though, the consideration there takes us to a time after this earth is already destroyed. There won't even be any day or night anymore. And so the same word there seemingly has no connection to night at all. May I offer, as we conclude that slide, it would seem then that the fair conclusion from the Word of God would be this. Though the Lord established it in the evening, that was simply a follow to the character of what the Old Testament had commanded for the observance of the Passover. And thus, when the Lord established the Lord's Supper, it just so happened to be at even, but that was not a binding arrangement connected to the way you and I celebrate it today. Today, just like they did in Acts 20. Whenever we come together, we have that as a signal event, a signal moment in that service, whether it be at the noonday hour, the afternoon hour, the morning hour. That part would not be a relevant matter. We would highlight the fact for it to be the service that God would find pleasing. We would wish to have that as a central part of it. And so, because it's called the Lord's Supper, that doesn't indicate the time of day. It's merely that feast at which the Lord sups with us. Those are our four questions for the night tonight. There are more questions that we shall get to, of course, as we come to the month of February. And we'll look forward to giving thought to those questions at that time. But as always, if you do have particular questions, feel free to place them in that box back there in the foyer. And we'll be happy to give them due consideration at the appropriate time coming up here in the next few months. As we close this lesson tonight, the whole reason 
that we find these questions to be a matter of propriety is because we have the highest conviction in the correctness of this book. We really do. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. To borrow the wording of Colossians 3, verse 17, it might be this evening that someone in this number, perhaps upon examination of your life, has recognized problems or difficulties, things with which the Lord is not well pleased. We'd like you to know that you can come to the Lord. He died on the cross that you and I might be saved. He died on the cross that you and I can have our sins forgiven. He died on the cross that we, as immortal spirits, can one day be ushered into the glorious confines of heaven. If at this moment tonight, all is not well with your soul, perhaps you've never obeyed the gospel initially, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If we could be of help in that regard, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have known the way of truth and the way of righteousness and have lived in accordance to it, but as of tonight, you've allowed choices and decisions, maybe influences of others to lead you in a way that your life is not currently as it ought to be. The Lord still loves you. His love hasn't waned in the slightest. But He does allow and wish for you to make your own decision. If you would wish to come rushing back to His faithful side tonight, we would like to urge you and encourage you, and we'd like to help you. The Lord commands in 1 John chapter 1 that you need to repent of those sins that have separated you from Him. Make confession of them, and He will gladly welcome you back into a place of faithfulness and fidelity. Brother Joy has chosen this song of encouragement. If at this time we could be of assistance or help, we encourage you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.